there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. A young man sat in his Toronto bedroom. The room was dark, except for the blue light reflecting off his computer screen and onto his pale face. It was late in March and still cold in Canada. But he didn't notice the chills seeping through the cracked window as he furiously typed, his fingers flying across the keyboard. On his screen? A browser window. Incel.me. This young man, like many involuntary celibates, loved incel chat rooms. They provided him with one of his only sources of emotional support and community. He didn't feel connected to the people around him in real life, especially women. With other incels, he could vent. Vent about chads, those perfect handsome guys who seemed straight out of a rom-com. The ones who got all the girls. The ones who tormented Alec with his comparative lack of masculinity. But most of all, he liked to vent about sadistic Stacys, the sexy women who wouldn't even glance at him without a sneer, and instead fell into the laps of chads like so many pieces of fruit. He hated those Stacys. And what woman wasn't a Stacy, really? They were all the same, superficial, cruel, unbearably alluring. If he couldn't date them, he'd make them his own another way. With blood. Welcome to The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original. A show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. Today is the first installment in a new season of The Dark Side Of. For 13 episodes, we unearthed the dark side of holidays. Now, with Valentine's Day looming on the horizon, we're discussing a different topic, dating. We celebrate dating as the natural and necessary path toward love, stability, family, all things that humanity has held dear for centuries. Complaints about a bad first date are usually tempered by the knowledge that it's all worth it. The means justifies the ends. But the search for love can have terrible consequences. In our era of online dating, this is more true than ever. Hopeful daters can turn into the worst version of themselves, becoming stalkers or even murderers. And even relationships that start well can turn dark too, plagued by infidelity, manipulation, and the constant pressure of societal expectations. Over the next 10 weeks, we'll cover these topics and more. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast 
and Twitter at Parcast Network. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other Parcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Today we're heading back into the past to figure out where dating comes from and how we stumbled upon the alluring idea of finding the one. As we're about to discover, it's a process that has always been plagued by as much strife and danger as hope and expectation. And today, things are no different. For young, upper-class Western women in the 1910s, finding a husband was a highly regulated process that took place almost entirely in the home. Suitable gentlemen came to call and talked with the lady while their relatives looked on, pondering the benefits of the match. Love was certainly a question on these young women's minds, and even the minds of their relatives. Love was an ideal outcome of marriage, beginning as far back as the 1700s. But love wasn't the main concern. Instead, all were focused on the union of properties and fortunes. But in the heart of growing metropolises around the Western world, something was changing. Women were joining the workforce. In the wake of the Industrial Revolution, they were living in boarding houses and working as shop girls or secretaries. And they were dating. Without relatives around to introduce them to eligible bachelors in the sitting room, and with so many men swirling around them in the halls of Macy's or Marshall Fields, there were very different kinds of opportunities available for meeting men. Opportunities that called for going out into the world with a gentleman prospect, considering that men weren't allowed to set foot in most boarding houses. That was a slippery slope to improper behavior in the upstairs bedroom, after all. The term date first appeared in the Chicago Record in 1896 in a column entitled Stories of the Streets and Town. It presented middle-class readers with a taste of working-class life. And in one particular edition, Artie, a young clerk, confronted a girlfriend who he hasn't seen lately, saying, I suppose the other boys fill in all my dates. It sounds like innocent fun here, but there was a dark side. In the mid-1910s, girls who dated had been labeled charity girls, as in sex workers who took no money for their work accepting dinner or drinks instead. And the law was all too happy to lump them in with other sex workers as criminals. In Maura Weigel's book, Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating, she writes, At Bedford Reformatory, an institution founded to rehabilitate female delinquents in upstate New York, an Irish woman told her jailers again and again that she had never taken money from men. Instead, men took her to Coney Island to dances and picture shows. Still, she was jailed for her fun by police officers who were suspicious that any woman gallivanting around town with a man was a criminal. Even if it was just dinner or entertainment, 
she was still selling her favors for material goods. Unconscionable, according to early 20th century law. Now we can look back on those conservative attitudes with some amusement, especially considering that daters kept on dating and the law backed down in the face of cultural change. But there's another dark backdrop to these early days of dating. Some women were only participating in the game to keep from starving. In the 1910s, it was largely accepted that women should earn less than men. After all, they were just tiding themselves over until they found a husband. Men, on the other hand, were breadwinners, working hard to ensure that their wife and children, or future wife and children, would be taken care of. For unmarried women, however, this created a predicament. They could barely survive that interim period before marriage. And God forbid they didn't marry at all and ended up spinsters. Spinsterhood, in the ideology of the time, was roughly equivalent to death. Working women's salaries made it almost practically equivalent as well. Dates often provided a solid meal, and sometimes even some much-coveted but otherwise unaffordable fun, like a trip to the picture shows. These working girls, despite the dangers of the law and the damage their reputations suffered, had little choice but to accept this strange new phenomenon of dating. At the time, there still wasn't much of a concept of finding the one. It was certainly a goal to meet a partner for marriage, but the idea that you loved that partner from the start, that you were a perfect match for each other, that was the stuff of fairy tales. The idea of matching up with a single boyfriend or girlfriend, as in settling down outside of wedlock, didn't come into play until the 1950s during the post-war baby boom. This is when the idea of going steady rose in the mainstream. Before the war, a couple would only go steady if they were seriously considering marriage. After the war, it was a way for teenage sweethearts to have a play marriage without necessarily implying that they were ready for marriage. It was easier to partake in all the new consumer wonders of the post-war economy with a partner, after all. Someone to eat with at the diner or watch movies with at the drive-in theater. With that change came a changing definition for what makes a good partner. Today, young mobile professionals typically place less emphasis on family approval and securing property. This is thanks, once again, to the kind of shifting economics and social mores that led to dating in the first place. Daters today are more interested in elusive contemporary ideas about compatibility. Again, the idea of the one, of soulmates. Though this may seem more enlightened, it comes with a dark side of its own. Whichever way dating tilted in the last hundred years or so, it always essentially settled on the same basic idea. It is meant to lead you to one final partner. Today, we do see variations on this theme. Polyamorous folks, for example, vary widely in their dating practices. Some choose to maintain multiple romantic partnerships openly and thus don't see dating as culminating in one relationship. But the dominant approach certainly remains the search for one consistent partner. 
Rom-coms and Disney films have coated the idea in this bright, shiny wrapping paper of beautiful stars with meet-cutes and a constant dialogue of true love. True love, which, of course, surpasses all material circumstances. It looks different from the old days of marrying Joe on the farm next door so the in-laws could conjoin properties. And there's certainly been some change in the types of pairings we see in today's movies. For example, the increase of happy cross-class and interracial relationships on screen. But the overall system has barely budged. The movies still insist on that time-worn idea that life is made for two. And it doesn't end there. The barrage of contemporary media we encounter every day, from advertisements to social media feeds, hammers in the same narrative. Think of those ads for underwear matching your partners. Even the most personal of objects, your actual underwear, are apparently better when they're matched up with someone else. This cultural insistence on the world of two isn't just upheld by pop culture and media, though. It's baked into our political and social system. Married couples get things like better tax rates. They get hospital visitation rights to go see a sick partner. It's no surprise that legalizing same-sex marriage was such an important battle, even for couples who'd already been together for a lifetime. A marriage certificate comes along with all kinds of legal protections that aren't granted to any other type of relationship. It's the most celebrated, legitimate type of love in our modern Western society. Date all you want, but in the end, you must find the one, as in no more than one. Monogamy still reigns supreme, and it is heavily tied to economic stability. We're not really so far from the days of selling off young people for dowries and land deeds. Still, most contemporary daters would say that the changes in criteria for the one, from primarily material to primarily emotional, are significant and significantly good developments. Perhaps they're right. There's less need for Romeos and Juliets today. Just ditch your family's issues and run away to Las Vegas. True love forever. But that doesn't mean these reformulated ideals aren't fraught with their own problems. Coming up, we'll explore some of the psychological and material pitfalls of the new millennia's obsession with finding the perfect one. Even if she doesn't live on the farm next door and you don't know her parents or her friends. Now back to the story. Dating reared its modern head in the 1910s. It was difficult from the beginning, plagued by jail time for hungry female daters. And in some ways, not much has changed in the century since. Society still seems intent on keeping most of the population in monogamous relationships. The criteria for those relationships do look very different. Daters no longer have to select partners on questions of family and property. But without the structure of those concrete requirements for lovers, we're left with an ill-defined and heavily idealized concept of compatible personalities. 
Hollywood doesn't remind you that even when you are choosing with your heart instead of your head, maybe especially when you are, relationships are difficult and don't always have a happy ending. The unrealistic notion of the easy, perfect love can lead to deep psychological pain. For daters who just can't seem to get it right, for whom dating hasn't looked like a rom-com or a filtered Instagram, and who doesn't that include, there can be profound psychological consequences. Dr. Yarn Holmes, a psychologist who has led research on the impact of media on relationships, explained, We all want to be successful in our relationships. We want to be the special one and meet the special one. Unfortunately, people tend to believe the Hollywood idea of a perfect relationship. That's just unrealistic. People feel if their relationship is not like a Hollywood film, then it is not any good. And one of the most common unrealistic expectations Dr. Holmes and his team uncovered? The idea of the one. That one perfect partner who fulfills every need and desire we might have. Who's such a perfect match, it seems they read our minds. These kinds of ideals make dating difficult. Who, after all, can read your mind on a first date? It's a harrowing premise, because it means every potential match, before they're even at the dinner table, is doomed to be a failure. The pitfalls of dating, however, aren't all psychological. There are very material dangers for the contemporary dater, just like for those hungry charity girls of the 1910s. Daters aren't just fighting against their own psychology as they arrive at bar after bar, hoping that tonight's match will finally be the right person. They're also fighting against unscrupulous or downright dangerous people who are all too willing to take advantage of open, hopeful hearts for their own ends. Take the story of Suzanne, recounted on the podcast Reply All in June 2015. She met a delightful man through the online dating application OkCupid called John on the podcast, although that's not his real name. John treated Suzanne like the heroine of a rom-com, tapping into culturally primed desires, and according to that pre-written Hollywood script, clearly indicating that he wanted to date her seriously. There was the date where they spooned on all the couches at CB2 to find the perfect one for John's apartment. It had to be wide enough for them to cuddle comfortably. Or the little snacks he'd sneak into her purse before work. Or the key he gave her to his apartment very early on in the relationship. But after six months of this fairy tale romance, Suzanne made a devastating discovery. John was dating a harem's worth of other women at the same time as her. All of them got the same adorable, if cliched, girlfriend treatment. Several of them had the exact same CB2 date as her. As Suzanne delved into her boyfriend's betrayal, the story only got darker and stranger. He had a habit of seriously dating three or four women at the same time, all while maintaining even more casual relationships, totaling up to seven or eight women in his life at a time. Then, when one of them inevitably found out about the others, 
and usually told all her compatriots in betrayal, he blocked the entire group of women on social media, stopped returning their calls, and find a new set of women to date. It was a bizarre pattern of behavior, different from simply cheating, and certainly a far cry from polyamory, which focuses on open communication between multiple partners. John was obsessed with dating itself. He loved performing all the cute behaviors that most people in relationships appreciate, but sometimes find tiring or difficult to maintain. He loved them so much, he did them seven times over with different women, all at the same time. The energy required for such a feat is astounding. And the depth of disconnect between dating and love, or real care and commitment that it shows, is disturbing. John's performance demonstrates just how much dating is a cultural practice, distinct from more basic human inclinations towards affection and trust. It also shows how dangerous it is to trust in the symbols of that cultural practice. Doubtless, John was a fabulous actor, and the women he dated believed in his act because he was good at seeming trustworthy. But also, doubtless, it was at least in part by using those Hollywood-propagated symbols of the rom-com lover that he was able to project trustworthiness. After all, we all know what it means when someone we're dating gives us a key. At least, we think we do. And John understood that. He warped recognizable symbols and used them to create a wall of control, separating his surface-level actions from the vulnerability that dating, at its root, is supposed to elicit. He constructed a world in which he was safe from all those risks we take when we open up our hearts. Painful rejection, the feeling that we are not good enough, that despite all our efforts, we'll end up alone. In short, he gamed the system. And in the process, lost any opportunity of winning the game according to its traditional set of rules, finding the one. Or, perhaps most disturbingly of all, maybe not. John's predilections only get more appalling when you examine something else about his cycles of betrayal. Every single woman he dated was Asian. Every single one of all those women. Every single time. Not only did John lie and deceive, but many of the women he'd been with also felt they'd been fetishized. He wouldn't be alone in that. Data collected by sites like OkCupid has confirmed that most daters are a little bit racist, tending their interests towards one specific race. Online dating makes this bias particularly easy to indulge by making it easy to seek potential partners based on race. But in John's case, fetishization has some particular implications for his scheme at large. It suggests that perhaps, in his warped mind, he really was getting the best of all worlds, avoiding vulnerability, but still getting the one. Perhaps to him, every woman he dated was the same, interchangeable, a symbol rather than a human being. He was recreating the entire rom-com narrative. Pretty girl, doting guy, adorkable moments at CB2. 
Sometimes the female actor changed, but more or less, thanks to his completely detached, gamified attitude, the show went on. Suzanne's story about John demonstrates several of the dark pitfalls that plague contemporary dating. Even if you're not getting fetishized or sucked into a psychotic rom-com script constructed by an apparently normal man. Our communities are spreading even farther apart from the days when people courted in the parlor room of mother's house. Now, thanks to the mobility of contemporary society, we're often dating someone whose background we know nothing about. Sure, sometimes daters meet people through friends or family, but we often meet strangers in big city bars. And most often of all, according to a study by Stanford sociologist Michael Rosenfeld, heterosexual couples today meet online, like Suzanne and John, who met on dating site OkCupid. Which means they go into dates without any background knowledge of the person they're meeting. There's no warning of a previous messy breakup, no warning of friendship drama or substance abuse. For example, Suzanne had no idea about John's past relationships. If she'd met him through a friend, she likely would have. And she would have never set foot in a CB2 with him. But when daters meet someone online or even at a bar, all they know is what this stranger tells them. And of course, what they can dredge up on the internet about the person they're dating. The John character in Suzanne's story had a personal website. All it said was, It's better to be hated for who you are than to be loved for who you are not. This lack of knowledge about the people we're dating can lead to upsetting and disturbing situations. And not just for women. In 2012, college linebacker Manti Teo was having an excellent season playing for Notre Dame. But personally, he was having a difficult year. His girlfriend, Lene Kekua, was battling leukemia. Or so he claimed in interviews. But this girlfriend, media outlet Deadspin revealed, did not exist. Teo's apparent girlfriend was actually the invention of an acquaintance of his, a man named Ronaya Tuesosopo. At the end of January 2013, Tuesosopo went on Dr. Phil to explain his motivations for the hoax. He had fallen in love with Teo and used a female identity as a means to get close to him. But regardless, Tuesosopo's motivations hint at a broader issue with contemporary dating. He was hopeless about his chances dating as himself, at least his chances of dating the man he wanted. So he tried to date as someone else, someone presumably better. In this case, better meant a different gender, considering that Teo was presumably interested in women. But more generally, this need to change yourself to successfully date ties back to those societal ideals we discussed earlier. Just as it can be extremely difficult to find the one, it can be hard for many daters to imagine themselves as the one. After all, we're human, imperfect. How could we be someone's perfect match? Especially when the person we want is that model of perfection. For example, a famous, handsome football player like Teo. More hopeful daters would point out that perfect match doesn't mean perfect person on either end. 
It means someone whose flaws as well as strengths complement their partners. But for people stuck in the weeds of awkward first dates and failed relationships, that can seem like a wishful fantasy. Or the reassurance of the lucky few who don't really know what it's like to be unwanted, undesirable, unloved. Coming up, we'll discuss a particularly dark version of these kinds of insecurities. Now, back to the story. Contemporary daters are plagued by the psychologically damaging pressure of finding the one, and by scammers who take advantage of that pressure. But the people navigating these upsetting scenarios are the lucky ones, in the eyes of the incels. Incel is short for involuntary celibate, as in individuals who don't want to be celibate, but thanks to consistent dating failure, they find themselves without any opportunities for sex or romance. The basic idea behind the concept is nothing new. For decades, unsuccessful daters have bemoaned a lack of sex in their lives. But the term incel comes out of a very specific and thriving online community. Found on websites like incel.me, as well as subreddit threads and 4chan forums, incels have developed a specific language for their experiences. They talk about chads, the sexually successful, attractive men they can never match. They discuss Stacy's, the beautiful, promiscuous women who sleep with the chads. Some incels react to their perceived inferiority with deep depression. They see themselves as innocent victims of the social pressures that plague everyone trying to find the one and often failing. But there is an even more concerning bent to the rhetoric of many incels. They've developed an explanation for their sexual failures that doesn't target the broader cultural forces at work, but rather women as a monolith. Women, according to this rhetoric, are shallow and only attracted to hyper-masculine, perfect-seeming men. Of course, a glance around any popular date spot on a Saturday night will show you otherwise. Plenty of imperfect-looking men, as well as women, do find love. But some incels are so blinded with rage at their own failure that they can't see beyond the dialogue circulating on their forums. They believe they are the victims of a profoundly unfair genetic lottery and profoundly unfair women. In some extreme, radical fringes of the community, anger about this state of affairs has led to insistence on an incel rebellion or beta male uprising. For these incels to get dates and the sex they deserve, they think the only solution is violence. We saw this violence in 2014, when a self-identified incel in Santa Barbara killed six and wounded 14 in a shooting spree. He justified his actions in a manifesto he sent to acquaintances and then widely shared online. The shootout was retaliation against women, all women, for every date who refused to have sex with him. Other incels were inspired by him including, in 2018, one in Toronto. He called the Santa Barbara shooter a supreme gentleman in a Facebook post before driving a van into a busy sidewalk and killing 10 people, all in the name of the incel rebellion. 
This violence is horrifying and deeply misguided. Incels are angered and frustrated by the stereotype of the handsome, successful male dater. But they ignore the fact that women, even more than men, are the victims of societal expectations of perfection, particularly physical perfection. If incels tried to understand the predicament they shared with those women, rather than turning the blame and violence against them, perhaps they might be able to improve their situation. Unfortunately, it's not just incels that are the culprits. It's tragically all too common for a nice date to end in bloodshed. In 2014, a New Zealand woman fell to her death from a balcony. She was allegedly trying to escape the violent advances of a man she'd met on Tinder. Prosecutors alleged that he choked and trapped her. In 2016, a 26-year-old woman in Mexico City went missing after going on several dates with a man she met online. Her bones were found in a trash bag at the date's home. He was accused of dissolving her body in hydrochloric acid after she refused to have sex with him. These incidents aren't unique. They're part of a wider issue, intimate partner violence. According to the CDC, about one in four women and nearly one in ten men have experienced sexual violence, physical violence, or stalking by an intimate partner during their lifetime. Dating convinces us to meet new people, open up and be vulnerable, all in the hopes of finding love or companionship or sex. But situations where people make themselves vulnerable can always end badly when one of the parties involved takes advantage of that trust. But that doesn't mean it's not worth taking the risk of opening up and being vulnerable anyway. A 2019 study commissioned by dating site eHarmony showed that if you're dating with the most genuine, simple of reasons, looking for love, you're not alone. Even amongst men who stereotypically are less interested in commitment, the study found that 67% of men surveyed were looking for a long-term relationship. For all the scammers and downright dangerous daters out there, most people are meeting you for exactly the reason they say they are, to see if you're a good match. The one, perhaps, or maybe just a one. And while most relationships won't end up looking like a Disney fairy tale romance, they can be deeply satisfying and rewarding. But getting through the early days of dating doesn't always mean bliss either. About 40 to 50% of married couples in the USA divorce. And some of the darkest parts of romantic relationships don't rear their heads until later on, like infidelity and codependent, even criminal behavior. Over the course of this season of The Dark Side Of, we'll cover these and many more problems with finding a perfect match in situations ranging from dating game shows to stalking. We'll also delve back into what came before dating and how some of those darker transactional underpinnings of heterosexual relationships still influence dating today. The fight for love may be a worthwhile one, but it's certainly fraught. So good luck at dinner tonight, whether it's the first date or the hundredth. Danger lurks beneath every napkin. 
Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. Next week, we'll be back to discuss the dark side of internet dating. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like The Dark Side Of for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream The Dark Side Of on Spotify, just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Nora Battelle, with writing assistance by Drew Cole, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Mm-hmm.